It's a big week when RHAP is on the road in Chicago. Check out my live show from Chicago. That's going to be up on Thursday, Wednesday night. Shannon Gus is going to be live with you with Kelly Wentworth after Survivor. And we preview the Dondi finale with Dealer No Deal Island host Joe Manganiello all right here on RHAP. We know reality TV. I'm Sarah Carradine, podcasting from Aora, Sydney. I'm Mari Forth. And this is Crime Scene, the true crime review podcast where we get to the heart of how true crime stories are told. You can get this program along with all the other fantastic reality TV content by subscribing to robhasawebsite.com slash feed. That's R-H-A-P-U-P-S. We'd love it if you would subscribe to our feed as well. Please go to robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed. You'll get your true crime on Tuesdays. If you've already subscribed, thank you so much. Sarah, what did we watch this week? This week we watched Exposed, the ghost train fire on Netflix. It's a three-part docu-series warning, spoiler warning, the parts are 90 minutes long. It was conceived by Caro Meldrum-Hanna and Jaya Balendra and written by Caro Meldrum-Hanna. It was nominated for an Actor Award for Best Documentary. That's the Australian Oscars. And joining us, I was going to say getting on the train with us, but maybe that's not something we want to do. It's our, <laughs> it's our favourite pop culture maven and official third chair of Crime Scene. It's eight-timer Sarah D. Bunting. Hey, Sarah. Oh, it's official. Happy Christmas yes, it's to official me. now. And hello. <laughs> hello, everyone. I'm so glad to be back. Yes, it's official. It's officially official. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yes, Sarah was our first guest and has been, uh, well, as you see, eight times a regular all the way through. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get to the crime because we've got a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. So Luna Park in Sydney was built in 1935 and the most popular ride was the Ghost Train, which was made elsewhere in 1931 and transported to Luna Park for the opening. It featured many twists and turns that yanked passengers along a 180-metre electric track. That's 590 feet for our imperial measurement peeps. <laughs> As with many ghost trains, there were cobwebs and dancing skeletons, an ape monster and a graveyard, the Rakula. The ride soundtrack said, there are lots of ghosts in here. Your shiver and quake in the ghost train, which I sort of wanted to make rhyme, but it doesn't. Most of the two and a half minute ride was pitch black, which helped conceal the ride's age. Uh, used that fantastic 30s technology of luminous paint. (laughs) After bursting through rubber doors to an outdoor caged area where the rest of the park and the merrymakers could be observed, the train plunged back into darkness where a fake fireplace blazed with a fan blowing orange streamers to simulate flames. On the night of 9th of June 1979, a real fire originated in that fireplace, according to eyewitnesses. 35 people managed to escape from the ride, helped in great part by ride attendant Tony Jacob. 
but six boys and a man died in the fire. They were John Goodson, 29, whose body was found shielding his two children, Damien, six, and Craig, four, and best mates, Jonathan Billings, Seamus Rahili, Richard Carroll, and Michael Johnson, who were all 13. The fire was originally blamed on electrical faults, but arson by known figures has also been claimed. The motive there was suggested to be an attempt to close the site, which is sitting on prime harbourside land, so that it could be developed. The exact cause of the fire could not be determined by the original coronial inquiry. The case was reopened in 1987. While no new findings were made, the police investigation and initial colonial inquiry were criticised. In April 2021, following the Australian release of Exposed, the Ghost Train Fire, and the subsequent public outcry, the New South Wales Police reopened their investigation, a reward of $1 million Australian million for fresh and significant information has been offered to encourage witnesses to come forward. As of November the 11th of this year, the reward is still active. So this is in my lifetime. I was 19 when this happened, so only a few years older than the boys who died. And it's, I was going to say burned on my memory, but that, feel, that feels not, not quite apposite, but maybe it is. And we see a lot of archival uh, footage and newspaper front pages, which has sort of startled me to remember exactly. And the faces, uh, particularly of the four schoolboys, uh, were very familiar to me. Sarah, did you know about this at all? Um, give us your background there, if you did, and your initial thoughts on the docuseries. I had never heard of this case before. I was six-ish when this happened and, of course, was uh, living in New Jersey in the States. So if it had sort of crossed the transom of my awareness, but this was like... Um, the big headline at that time, I think, for most of us, although later that year was Aton Pates. So similar mm. sort of child focused, um, like childhood changing um, tragedy and story. Uh, but I had not heard of this case. I was not familiar with it. And I was uh, content to learn from the docuseries. I was not tempted to. Google, even though I know that this was in the can for a couple of years, I was not tempted to sort of second screen and find out if another inquiry had been opened, what the conclusions were after this. Um, so I will say that for Exposed, that it did hold my attention. Yes, the episodes are long, but uh, it is successful in building its story and atmosphere, uh, I think. And at at certain points, almost too successful. Like it was very um, trying to to witness this testimony in some cases, especially these families who are, of course, still destroyed and still living with this space where their loved ones were. So, um, I mean, very like merciless at times, but quite effective overall. And Mari, how about you? What are your overall thoughts of the case? And did you know it before this docuseries? Uh, yeah, I wasn't aware of this case. I was uh, not born. Uh, <laughs> this case. <happened>. Fine. <laughs> um, and 
you know, I had heard so many good things about the series from you, you know, since our coverage, it's, I think it's come up uh, on this program a few times. So I was excited going into it that hour and, and, and a half uh, runtime did was felt did feel daunting for me because I, my attention span is not that long. Um, but getting over the, the first hump, once we got to like the unraveling of the crime, I was all in. I, I have to admit that first episode was really hard for me just because, you know, it, it, it did a really good job of spotlighting the victims, but mm-hmm. unfortunately the victims yeah. were all children. So it just made me very sad. Like yeah. I was, that at first, the first episode was really hard because it was, it was a, it was a really sad part, you know? Um, but I, I get it. I, you know, we love when they, they spotlight, you have to spotlight how people's lives are changed and affected by, by these things. And I love that they did that up front. Um, but it, it was definitely hard for me. Um, but once they, once it got going, like, like SDB said, I, I, knew, I didn't want to look it up. I wanted it to unfold and I was on the edge of my seat as they put together what they believed happened. And I thought it was so good by, by the end um, of the third episode. I was like, okay, this, like I, I was in it. I, I think we've been at, we've been asking for um, like forensics evidence, like different p- pieces of evidence, procedural walking us through it, like uncovering stuff. Like, I think I got all of that here. And so I was definitely um, satisfied. I did want to ask you a question, Sarah, because I know this, this premiered in Australia a few years ago, correct? Yes. Was it was it broken up differently? Was this like maybe like a six part documentary or something? It's always been three like this. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So it was it was um, made by the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, mm-hmm. and it played both in its broadcast and on demand as as the full three parts. I was wondering that too because I knew I'd be mm. coming and talking to you and having to justify asking mm. you both to to do four and a half hours of a documentary. But I can't see, and I wondered whether cutting it into six parts would work. But each part right. seems to have such a narrative drive yeah. within it. There were like pauses. There were like pauses in certain sections that I had noticed. That's why I had asked. It felt like. Mm-hmm. There are like pauses and like uh, like slight pivots in certain in certain parts. So I was just I was just wondering. Sarah, how did you find the runtimes of the three episodes? And do you think they could have been cut up differently? Um, I don't think they could have been like divided up differently. Uh, at any point where I sort of felt like um, the pace was a little too uh, stately, mm-hmm. I also felt like. Once you get into sort of the towards the end of the first episode, which I think is the most, I don't want to say painstaking because that's a little Mm -hmm. negative, but I think the most sort of um, careful and letting these, the stories of the victims and their families breathe and giving Mm -hmm. them their time, which is worthwhile, but it can, it can bog down a little for some people. So I was thinking, well, Maybe like maybe this is where I would have fine tuned some of the runtime out of it, like just sort Mm -hmm. of tweaked it a little. So it was like five or 10 minutes shorter, but I wasn't really seeing a lot of places where uh, there was filler or 
you know, like reenactments that weren't working. Mm -hmm. I wasn't seeing a lot of opportunities to tighten it up. I think it was as long as the story told the director and the writer Mm -hmm. that it needed to be. And particularly by the end of the first episode where um, there's like a collaging together of all of the stories into the into the timeline as it's happening that I thought was extremely well done, compelling, Mm -hmm. tense, um, occasionally like this horrifying bloom of fire would be cut in between a talking head Mm -hmm. set of interviews and that feeling of just sort of like building tension. And even though this person is talking to you in the present day and you know that they escaped, it's still mm-hmm. extremely tense and like suspenseful almost. And I really felt at that point as though whatever the pacing was going to be at any point, that it was all um, considered and purposeful. So it is long, but you, ha- you kind of have to trust it and let it do its work on you. That, that, I mean, that's my advice. Like it's not, it's not going to be for everyone. And also that first hour is like, it's upsetting. It's dispiriting. Mm-hmm. It's grieving. It's watching yes. people grieve. But that's what it's for. And it's, I think that's important to this story and to just the experience of consuming true crime. Like this, you know, it's not just entertainment and you have to hear testimony that is sad. So I thought it was really well done that way. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's take that first episode first. It's a very good place to start. It starts with Jason Holman, who was called the luckiest boy alive. He says he doesn't feel like it. He was the fifth wheel in the group of slightly older boys who died. Two went into the ghost train, followed by two, and he was in the next car. And by the time he was about to go in, the reports of smoke and fire were coming up the other side. And the attendant, uh, bodily pulled him out of the car. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was called the luckiest boy alive. How did you find him as a, he's not the narrator because we really have Cara Meldrum Hannah for that. She's on screen and I, I, we can talk about how effective you think she is. I think very much so. She's us investigating, asking questions, going here, going there. But how did you find Jason Holman as a thread through this first episode, Mari? Um, I thought he was a really good constant. I thought seeing him, it's just that reminder that like, I can imagine what it's like, like being him as the person who survived and all that survivor's guilt and, and all of that. But him telling us, like walking us through the boys days, um, talking about all the emotions running through them and his emotions running through them after, you know, later when, when they get caught in the fire, I think he was a perfect like sub narrator or, or whatever, because I felt like he, like he, and among a a whole bunch of the talking heads, but also him, he, he made me feel like I, I I was there that day with all of his descriptions. And famously anti reenactments, did the reenactments help you with that feeling? Yeah, I actually, I, I like the reenactment. It, the reenactments were like 
almost so real that I was like, I had to keep reminding myself, I was like, there's no way they have this footage of like of this place burning down. You know what I'm saying? I, I truly had to keep reminding myself because they did a pretty good job of splicing it with like the Luna Park, what I'm assuming is like the promotional materials, like commercials mm-hmm. and stuff, and like old archival footage of like days at Luna Park. So they did an amazing job splicing all that together. The um, reenactments, again, just felt so real, especially with all the fire. Like, I'm so interested in how they were able to to do those reenactments because, uh, again, it, it really made you, once they started going through what happened, it really made you feel like, okay, I, I can imagine being there. I can imagine the panic and, and, and being scared and all of that. So, so thumbs up for these reenactments. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Sarah, the the use of the map graphic, which showed you where all the parts of the of the ghost train were and what the the route of the of the track was, the television reportage of the time, the newspaper reportage of the time. How did that strike you? The use of that strike you in this uh, first episode? Well, I think with um, something that. A story like this that is so heavily reliant on uh, quite um, vintage by this point, uh, eyewitness accounts that, as it turns out, a big part of the story is that these eyewitness accounts were ignored or sort of like actively, forcefully not wanted on the voyage of the story. But there's a lot of dispute um, and then no real evidence was maintained, which again, this is also at the heart of the story. But for someone like me who is, um, past listeners may remember this, that sometimes I complain, like you have to um, remember that some of us have zero spatial relation aptitude and really need, like people make fun of the crazy wall, but it's like some of us need the crazy wall. Some of us need the map with the dotted line and like a circle, like here's where people saw the flame. Like, thank you. Yes. So this was one of the better, um, in addition to once the director sort of comes in and becomes not a character in the story, but starts um, being our uh, Virgil, I guess, in terms of the processy parts of the investigation in the present day, that and the use of the map really gave me a sense of the layout of the ride. And like, you know, I was, I was a child many, many decades ago when God was also a child, like I've been on rides like this. Um, and it gave a, it was very evocative as to that sort of, um, that hitchy sensation of that kind of ride, how dark it is, how it kind of smells like feet, (laughs) old smoke. So like if you smell kerosene, you would notice that. And just the, the sense of place that uh, was, was created was impressive, especially for someone like me who, you know, sometimes in documentaries like this, it's like, like literally, where are we? I'm not located <laughs> in, in space mm-hmm. and time in this story. And uh, that was that was really well done. And then just the occasional, like even not even a full second cut in of these flames, just like boiling up an entire wall and then back to someone's account uh, gave a real like emotional sense of the of the terror that they must have experienced. But also I did get a good sense of where everything was and why the locations were significant. So 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the reenactments too. Like I'm not usually a fan, but these felt uh, advised like most things did in this documentary that it was like, we're not going to go too crazy with the like deep focus and mm-hmm. people flailing their arms around. Like we're just going to do the bare minimum to kind of give this some visual terrain, which I thought was good. Uh, just to assure yeah. our listeners, there's no reenactments of the deaths. <laughs> No. It's it's uh, it's the the carriages banging through. It's the it's the fire and so on. The carriages coming out on fire. That's yeah. Um, that yeah. was chilling. Chilling. Oh, that Very. was a good shot. Really well done. Mm-hmm. Well, those were indicative of the carriages that the people who died had been in, and in a spectacular piece of victim blaming. Uh, Luna Park officials said, well, if they'd just stayed in the carriage, they would have been all right, Uh, despite the fact that the people who escaped all left their carriages and found Mm -hmm. ways out or were assisted by Tony Jacob. And also reported, eyewitnesses also reported the flaming cars coming out the other end and going, absolutely no chance that you could have survived in a carriage. I think for me, the the thing that I'd forgotten, because I mean, I was when I was a child, which was, you know, God wasn't even born then, Sarah. Uh, <laughs> I, in the 60s, went to Luna Park and it was an amazing, magical place. You know, this is before we had a television and mm. all our toys were made of wood. Um, but <laughs> it, was, it was an incredible place. I remember the banging of those rubber doors and it's any ghost train that anyone's ever been in. You'll know it. But what I'd forgotten and I found incredibly visceral, both they described it, they had it in reenactments and they had some news footage of it, was the caged area that the cars came out into halfway through the ride where you could see the park and the park could see you and the terror of the people who came out of the fiery ride Nobody knew it was on fire yet, came out, could see escape, could see where they could be to be safe, and they couldn't get out because because they were caged, and then they banged back into into the ride. To me, that was so well evoked. Uh, I mean, I think deliberately so. But we have, in the second part of the first part, we have a, a lot of eyewitnesses, people who are actually on the ride. And when I rewatched it, I was surprised I'd forgotten them and how important their testimony was. Uh, Sarah, was there anyone that stood out for you in any of the talking heads in, in the first part? Uh, there is a woman. I can't, I can't remember her name. It's a, it's a Germanic last name. And I think her first Jutta name is Jutta Yes. <laughs> Who is um, absolutely not having any version of the official story mm-hmm. that um, the director has not even finished um, talking about how they said it was a power fault and Utah's like that's horseshit um, bless because yeah probably uh, but the uh, there's sort of a wide range of emotions from people who were present and the control that Utah is clearly keeping her self under in terms of um, returning to this trauma for herself, but also a sort of righteous anger at how it was handled, I thought was quite effective 
And um, there was a, you know, very low pH to those interviews <laughs> that was, that was very affecting. And, but I mean, I thought they were all, I thought they were all good and it was impressive the, the number of them that there were and the wide range of access that, that uh, she got Meldrum Hannah, because I mean, a lot of these people should, you would think would not be wanting to discuss this, whether because of trauma or because of the implication of investigators, but it, it was very impressive. And uh, Utah was particularly memorable to me. About <laughs> you guys. Yeah. I, I really liked all of the talking heads. I, I kind of liked um, all of the older talking heads um, where the ones who basically alerted everybody about the fire. Mm-hmm. Um. I like I like all I like all of those people, but one person that I do want to um, uh, spotlight, Frank Boitano, the Luna Park employee. He was good. Like he was very interesting because you could see him reliving it. You can see him like almost mm-hmm. not wanting to relive it. And as the documentarians are doing, just the, the, the most fantastic thing of handing the 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 talking heads evident as she's going through it with them i mean that was such an effective um story tool and i'm sure we'll talk about it but he's just like oh my god not something else (laughs) he's like every time she hands him a paper he's like oh god like what are you about to reveal to me now and then later on uh it being revealed that he he was he went from like a luna park ticket holder or ride attendant to a lawyer yes uh was really i i love finding that out and um his thoughts on on some of the stuff they discovered so he was i i really liked his reactions i liked the reactions of a lot of these talking heads they did a really good job of presenting these talking heads with the information in the moment and we we saw a lot of people taking in information in the moment and i mean that's for the good the bad and the ugly you know what I'm saying? We got we got all of it when they're pre- when they were presented uh, new information. But um, I, I really enjoyed just the overall process of of them um, using the talking heads. Yeah, and we're introduced to a character that we're only going to see archivally, and that's Martin Sharp, very important Australian artist, uh, founder of the Yellow House, which is literally you know, just down the road from me. It's still there. It's a cafe now. But it was an important art movement. I had a Martin Sharp print, you know, in the 80s that I loved. And his work, it it, it, it can't be underestimated, the sort of visual impact of his work still today graphically on, on Australian artists. He comes up because he was obsessed with Luna Park and became obsessed with the case. Sarah, when Jason shows Caro Meldrum Hannah uh, the trays of cassette tapes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> how did your little journalistic uh, antenna go off? Uh, my notes say, oh, so he's Australia's Richard Belter <laughs> because <laughs> it just like put me in mind of how tirelessly like Belzer found a guy to co-write two books with him about all the things the Warren report lied about, about the JFK assassination. And it just <laughs> reminded me, like, here's this guy who's sort of known for um, 
another uh, genre of of art um, taking on this case and never never letting it drop. Um, and certainly a tray of cassette tapes um, gave my uh, 80s kid heart a, a, a tingle. But I also remember thinking like, you know, Belzer makes a lot of good points, but it's hard to prove negatives. So I, I really wondered, like, is where is this going? Like, how is this going to be structured? Um in the event that this is a uh, a victim, like in Holman's case, sort of a, a survivor kind of seizing on a crackpot theory to sort of, um, I don't know how to say it, not rationalize it, but just to sort of contextualize the strategy for himself, which is a perfectly human response. But I was like, if this turns out to be this really, you know, and then Elvis and a band of aliens came and lit the like, Oh God, like this could get sad in an entirely other way. That's not credible and is hard to watch in a different way. And it didn't go that direction at all. I think that the shift into all right, let's figure out what's on these tapes. Yeah, take and, us into the second and third episode now, Sarah. Yeah. With the um, investigation. So, so that's when they start, they get everything transcribed. They start chasing down these accounts. They start finding various witnesses that um, had, you know, had a testimony that wasn't used at the inquest or that was suppressed, allegedly by the police and then it turns into this whole New Jersey-esque corruption thing that I think they did a really good job stepping you through it. Like for an American viewer, I wasn't, you know, granted I'm from New Jersey. So some of these corruption stories, it's like, you could take a shortcut. I grew up with this. I get it. But um, I thought they did a really good job stepping you through it clearly, but not too not too slowly like it wasn't too didactic a pace um but yeah i think that i think that the um the leading with martin sharp was an interesting choice that i remember thinking like i don't depending on what is on those tapes i don't i don't know like this is a four and a half hours is a lot of time to spend mm-hmm. on like sort of bogus not proof proof so i i think that they did they paced it well and they made it seem reliable like i was convinced i don't know about you guys yeah leading with martin martin sharp i guess it's because you know we have no cultural um recollection of him so i was just like i was again this was one of those moments where i was taken out of it because i was just like okay it's a guy he's he's obsessed like it's all these recordings like okay like <laughs> like that's, that's that's all it was the locked room you know uh, with all like, the artifacts yeah. and files like, and okay. yeah mm-hmm. yeah right 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 and and like as db said it could have been like you know a crackpot you just you just didn't know at that that point for us because i didn't know right. I, like they said he did all these things but i'm like i, I don't know what that means here like the, the way Cara Meldrum, Hannah, and her collaborators step through the evidence. And you do think, eh, yeah. I don't know about this. Oh, 
Yeah. Oh, I mean, I found myself. Yeah. And then when we got to the, you know, we got around. to Neville, Neville ran. I said, effing Neville fucking ran. I can't believe it. Yes, <laughs> but I can believe it. Yeah. No, I, I, I thought, I thought they, I thought they did a, a really good job. And like I said, episode two is was is really where um, I thought it hit the ground running for for me. Um, I will say for everybody out there, like this is one of those documentaries, like. When I looked down for two seconds, I'm like, "Oh man, I I lost it," and I had to I had to rewind so many times. Yeah. So it's not a two screener. I I it probably took me longer than four and a half hours to get through it because I had to keep rewinding, stop you know, stopping rewinding whenever I would fall out of it. Um, but I I did think that the most successful part was like we said, the maps, I would, I would even, you know, me, I would have loved the map to be up a little bit longer. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Um, the explanation of, of the deaths, was it just that they, they got lost within the ride after trying to escape Sarah? Like, I don't, cause they weren't. That's the like, idea. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Cause when because, they um, the map, Tony Jacob yeah. could see them, but he couldn't, he couldn't get to them. Get to them. Yeah. Cause I was, I was really shocked once, once, like I said, some of the um, eyewitnesses started going through the actual account, what happened and how they, they said they went through and how the, the father and the sons were behind them, but the boys didn't get on until later. I was like, I just assumed that they were like right behind each other. Like it was one of those things. It was like, right behind each other thing but it was no it was like it was probably so much chaos and panic and not clearly marked exits that led to mm. some of their deaths and i and i i find yeah. that i find that like truly sad but i i did and i wanted to learn a little bit more about the ride operator who like let the the boys go even though at that point they were still kind of signaling fire did we we didn't hear from that guy did we yeah because tony I, I, said he was the ticket taker mm-hmm. and tony said the the operator the guy pushed the yeah yes, pushed the he button. pushed the yeah. button no he was yes. he was there but i feel like we did after a certain point we didn't hear that much from I, him and there yes. could be a lot of reasons for that but yes i mean once you mm-hmm. get into the second episode and just this um cavalcade of like dozens of people having pertinent information and then one after yeah. another they're like we were invited down but we weren't called or we weren't even told to come to the yes. inquest like mm-hmm. and then you really start smelling a kerosene soaked yes yes and, and then the second it gets into like oh it's a real estate thing that i was like oh jesus here well, we go here so, we so, go it's so funny so we haven't talked about detective inspector douglas knight who yes is probably get into him Mary. get into him <laughs> the man who started the cover-up the man who just mere hours after the fire said it was an electrical fault. And this was, this was the part of the documentary that I, I really loved because um, Carol and her team were introducing the official statements to the eyewitnesses and the eyewitnesses are like, these official statements are not lighting up between Douglas Knight and them saying that there were four witnesses who said that they saw sparks and electrical, electrical sparks shortly before the fire. All the eyewitnesses are sitting there like, Hmm. It wasn't me. <laughs> and then the, the, yeah. the smash cut of just all the witnesses be like, I didn't say I saw sparks. I know it wasn't sparks. And the one lady talking about how it originated in the, the fire. Well, they all of the all of the witnesses, when shown the map, they said, where did you see the fire? 
they all put an X near the imitation fire area. Mm. And one lady had even said she saw the fire and she kind of put her hand near it and felt the heat. And so all of these people, all of their statements correlate saying, no, we saw the fire originate in this one spot. But the official statements are saying that it originated in this other spot that it couldn't have originated from. And then they start showing pictures of the, the Southern fuse box is what uh, Douglas Knight um, blamed the fire for. And they had pictures of the, the Southern fuse box almost looking completely untouched among mm-hmm. uh, spooky. The, yeah, really. It was one of the only things standing in the in the flames. And when they start to get to this cover up, it was it was just so funny because I was like, this seems like to me uh, during the second episode, I was like, this seems like something just a group of teenagers would probably do. Like once they said that it was like, oh, the fire was started in the imitation fireplace. And I was like, I can see some ne'er-do-wells doing this. Mm-hmm. And then as it as it unfolds and then shortly has like is this for real estate? And it like slowly and slowly unfolds. I was like, oh my God, this is, it was, it was very good. But uh, I, I like getting into the detective inspector Douglas Knight and then the unfolding of just the horrendous people who, who, who did this cover up. For people who don't know uh, where Luna Park is, if you were standing at the Sydney Opera House, the most recognisable building in the world, apparently. If you were standing at the front tip of that and you were looking across at the Harbour Bridge, where the northern span touches down is where Luna Park is. It's right underneath where the bridge is. So primo harbourside real estate. That rang true for me, the real estate uh, cover-up. Sarah, what struck me was, uh, you know, with some conspiracy theories, you go, that's all very well, but ha- like to what end and and is it logical and could this have happened? Did you find as it, as it unfolded that it became more uh, realistic in terms of, in our opinion and allegedly, uh, the, the light conclusion that, that Karen Meldrum, Hannah and her team come to? Uh, yeah. I mean, Going into it, like at the top of the episode, I sort of felt like that it was going to be probably more a question of negligence that was covered up. And I sort of felt like I was going to be um, treating with a story that was like the Action Park documentary meets uh, the American Experience episode about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. And that this was going to be... Um, more of a negligence issue in covering that up. I had no idea that it was going to be this like Aussie Serpico situation that was just like that the corruption went all the way up to the to the level all of, the way to the me. top. <laughs> so I had no idea that we were that we were getting into that. But again, you know, spending my entire life in the New York, New Jersey, tri-state area, pretty much like this was eminently believable that this is how these things get done. I would really like I was just maddened that they never tracked down the actual uh, bikies. Yeah. Were um, ta- allegedly, et cetera, tasked yes. with setting this fire because it's like if all you want is to like clear off this um, land and get it condemned so you can take it over for your own nefarious um, 
you know, turn up with a haircut, whatever the hell you're doing. Um, maybe wait until everybody went home. Like, but the, the, it was mentioned that that was in the yeah. garden state. We'll yeah. do it in the middle of the night when there's mm. not a fucking four year old on the ride. Oh my God. Oh. Like, don't outsource this stuff to people who are going to light yes. children on fire, even by mistake. Fuck. The, I did pick up that the, the, inst- the alleged instruction, allegedly, was to do it after the park closed. Mm. And that made it because I was thinking you don't just mm-hmm. kill children like it brings far too much, far too much heat, heat. as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. So once, so every time I had a question of, oh, it doesn't quite make sense, again, would be a, pla- a beautifully paced uh, release of information to us and the release of the information that, it was supposed to be after the park closed. I thought, well, that makes sense. Were mm-hmm. I a, you know, were I Abe Saffron, for example, <laughs> dead, dead now. So I, am I allowed to defame him if he's dead? Uh, allegedly. Uh, <laughs> you know, were, were I a kingpin of some or a queenpin of some kind, I would say, I wouldn't want children to die. Why would I? I'm not a cold-hearted monster. I would say, can you please set it on fire after closing? Uh, and then the, the the mechanism by which that didn't happen, it just all, it made sense. But then maybe maybe the documentaries making it make sense. Mari? Well, I mean, allegedly, you know, Abe is, is good at this. He's, he's not he's not new to this. He's true to this. He's he's <laughs> allegedly burned down at least God. six other buildings. Yes. And when they were talking about those other six other buildings, they didn't say anything about anybody dying. So. Yes. I took it as those were professionally done mm-hmm. after hours, low stakes, low, you know, heat. And I, I think the problem here was outsourcing to a bunch of 18 to 20 year old yeah. bikies, apparently that, that mm-hmm. nobody could really clock their ages. But like, like SDB said, like with th- such vivid descriptions of those perpetrators, you should have, easily been able to track them down i mean they were if you were looking for them if you were exactly if you were looking for them one of them had like uh shoulder length blonde hair the 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 star tattoo on his earlobe i was like oh my god such distinguishing features but you know it was called off the the equivalent of the apb um was called off because they didn't want them found because Mm -hmm. they could have pointed the finger back to to the main culprits yeah so it was a journey. That that second episode was was the journey mm. um, to, that starts uh, the the third episode for me, which was mind blowing. Yeah, I mean, t- taking off the allegedly, the fact is that the police were clearing the site the next morning. Oh yeah, that and was a gut punch. That's another thing. Like, I just the way that that timeline was laid out, and just how long it took, i.e., half a half a day yeah have a day like yeah hours next, midday the next day everything's gone but the tracks mm-hmm. like the uh one of the parents comes down mm-hmm. to leave a flower and everything's been leveled and i realize it's not on the same scale but like at 9-11 it took them like two years to, mm. to clear off because they weren't trying to hide anything like they took their time mm-hmm. As a result, many investigators on that pile are now ill and, uh, you know, I wish them the best, truly. But that's, I mean, this is the cost of really investigating something like this. And it is, 
I can't believe it wasn't necessarily more shocking at the time to people that mm-hmm. it was like, you know, someone's out there with like a broom and a dustbin once the sun comes up and like all this like heaps of debris. Uh, yeah. Also, also called evidence. The forensic, the forensics in you, Mary. They talk yes. to is like, yes. What the? Yeah. yeah, they they talked to like at least two firefighters, I believe, and mm-hmm. and I don't, I didn't understand why the why the firefighters or the fire marshal or the fire chief wasn't taking point on this, and why it was the police department, which we learn later. I might feel like be he crooked. didn't understand that either. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I think uh, you know, like Douglas Knight showed up, like enough they said, he kind of said, and it was like, okay. They put it. They put Douglas Knight in charge. He rolled up and he he started making the de- decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the enduring images for me of the documentary is Douglas Knight on the television uh, news it, it, at the site the next morning, saying, "Yes, we've determined it was an electrical fire," and his eyes dropped down and away. And I thought, "Yeah, you, and then he you can't even throw it. Like, you cannot even look down the barrel of the camera with that lie." <laughs> the other thing that that turned me, if it's true was the the girls saying they were going to go to the park because yes. they wanted to meet mm-hmm. the boys and the father getting the word uh don't let them go so that's so that's how episode three opens right we mm-hmm. we talked to um one of the mothers of one of the boys um and she said she had just noticed a bunch of girls like really crying at the back of her funeral and then later one of the girls calls her up and said we were supposed to meet with him that night but you know my father wouldn't let us go and the mother's like i always found that quite odd and then they're like who's his father is like what is his name john rooklyn or something um his His name's saffron yeah rooklyn yeah (laughs) some his name was something rooklyn but he was a known like gangster liaison like he had ties to mafia people here in america and he basically tells him don't go that night because something is gonna go down and the way that they open episode three like that and then just the the red strings of it all was (laughs) just (laughs) truly Amazing because we find out Brooklyn is the one who puts Douglas Knight in charge. And then um, on top of Douglas Knight, I forget the, the second guy, but the biggest thing was the third guy. When they showed the third guy's picture to all the police officers, and they were like, oh, not not him. And we just get all of their reaction. Of like, a couple of them just are like holding the photo like it yes. is like a doggy bag of poo that they're just like, oh, this, yes. this asshole. And Got it's it. revealed to be Bill Allen, apparently, mm-hmm. who is known as the world's crookedest cop, who we, mm-hmm. we see a news footage later. Um, he like get he he later gets charged in all sorts of just bribery uh all this stuff just he's outed for like a good portion of his crimes and it was just it was just like very amazing to unfold if you love that red string this is where this is where it's at I mean, they used to they used to say New South Wales police, the best police force money can buy. Uh, It's not so anymore. But, you know, certainly it's it it, none of it's uh, rang falsely to me. So anything else before we give our ratings and final thoughts? I think that this was particularly um, respectful of 
victims and their differing experiences of a single tragedy um, Mm -hmm. in a way that is less unusual than it has been like five years ago or 10 years ago, uh, which is a good thing, but still striking. I mean, you know, we all consume a lot of these uh, documentaries and there were ways in which this was, this had an an ear for um, the emotion of its own story that I found impressive and um, admirable as well. I would also like to say that this was a a stunning use of um, talking heads. Like SDB said, it it gave, it gave them room to grieve. It gave them room to recount the events in their own way and to present their own stories. Um, And there was a lot of them. There was like, there's truly a lot of them. Actually at the end of the docuseries, we get like the board full of everybody that we talked to and they did a remarkable job of letting these people lay out the story while also giving us reenactments that made sense, archival footage that gave context. And um, just, I, I love the way that we got to see Carol and her team connect with the talking heads. I'm thinking about Les Dowd, who they, who they found. It felt like they were finding people. I, I, I want to know who the researcher was because it felt like they were finding people just up and down Sydney. I don't know the coast of Sydney, but I feel like they were all up and down it. Um, Mm -hmm. So um, I think it was, I do think it was wonderfully done for it to be mostly um, people's firsthand accounts of what they remember. And they did a a perfect job of of weaving all of those different stories together. And again, like I, like, of course I said, um, showing them, showing the the witnesses and people like stuff that they had maybe not seen before and getting their, their authentic reactions on camera was, was a a really, really good touch. I think it's interesting, you know, time, time has passed. It's over 40 years. And I think, you know, it's very, very fresh for a lot of people still, but also other people who might have tales to tell or a piece of information they've been chewing on for 40 years. It may be a, a relief to talk to a journalist to write something down to make a deathbed confession. Mm-hmm. You know, we see this in uh, often, you know, late. Why, why do they speak now after all these years? But in fact, it is after all these years, is the time that you speak because you've mm-hmm. been living with it for, for all that time. So, Sarah, how many magnifying glasses are you going to rate exposed the ghost train fire out of a possible five? Uh, I think in the as of the end of the first episode, I would have been at a three and a half or a four. And then as of the middle or the end of the second episode, it was up to a four and a half. But I'm going to give it the full five because it has a cumulative power. Uh, it has a respect for its victims. It's affecting, but it's not um, It's not like cynical about the way that it's trying to affect you. It's just telling everyone's stories and letting them tell their stories in a way that is uh, very moving, but also rigorous as far as I could see. It wasn't a story I was familiar with. Mm-hmm. I wasn't tempted to Google it. Uh, I really... You know, do I have a couple of little nitpicks? Maybe, but it's more that it's like, I just want to find out what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And that's not on Meldrum Hannah. That's on 
the corrupt power structures of 70s and 80s uh, New South Wales. So five, yeah. I'm doing it. Wow, you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Doing it. Mari, what about you? How many magnifying glasses? I'm going to give them a 4.5 just because I do have to knock off the 0.5 for the first episode because honestly, if we weren't covering it and I just put this on just to put it on, I truly don't know if I would have gotten to the great bits. I, I truly don't because I agree with SDB. It really compounded on itself and it made sense by the end and it did a very good job from tip to tail. But the tip doesn't really draw you in as much as the tail does. So, so, um, you know, for some people who, again, like us true crime heads who are just like, oh, let me turn on something in the background or let me just, you know, pop this on. This looks entertaining. I don't know if they would have stuck around. So just Mm -hmm. for that, I'm going to give it a 4.5. But altogether, it's something I'm really glad I I stuck with and I watched because I was so intrigued by the end of it. And and I and and I don't care. I know we're supposed to be subjective, but I was like, they solved it. (laughs) To me, it was just like it it all made sense. They solved it. Mm -hmm. And so I like that kind of outcome as well. Like, you know, that it feels like we do have answers to the the question even though they might be they might not be official answers i i do feel like a lot of the holes were were plugged up and they did a great job of doing that how about you sarah look i'm a five i love that first episode almost in and of itself even if there wasn't to be further further uh exploration investigation can of worms as openings is just <laughs> for the very human stories that it told the, as Sarah says, stately pace. It actually kind of needed to be. And then right in the last minute of that episode, it's like, hmm, arson, question mark. And then that draws you into the world of the second and third episode. So I'm going to give it a five. There was criticism of the program's allegations at the time that it came out. And the ABC board uh, established an inquiry into the program. So two weeks ago, we reviewed part one of a three-part docuseries, Murder in Boston with Gia Worthy. We all gave that five magnifying glasses based only on that first episode. Uh, Now we've all watched all the episodes. Uh, Sarah, what were your overall thoughts on that property, Murder in Boston? This is a case that I was familiar with. Uh, I'm sure this is not true. Um, at least like even in Boston, I'm sure this is not true, but my sort of like naive at that time mind kind of feels that Chuck Stewart, uh, was the vanguard for lack of a better term of blaming a black guy. And this was really about not just that, but about Boston's whole problem <laughs> and, uh, i think that in that regard it's the same guy who did the michael jordan yep. series so there's some mm-hmm. like build um construction ticks that um are put to good use here i think like pretty good use uh i felt like this by making it much more about the context of place and time um made made the story sort of like greater than the sum of its parts um it was really not easy to watch it was gross the whole stewart family seems to um, have a lot of problems or had a lot of problems but uh although i 
I think that it was a victim of like everything has to be a three parter now for some mm-hmm. reason. I, I'm not sure that's necessarily true. I think this could have been a two hour feature, but it was um, very compelling. And I think it set up from the correct angle. So for me, it would be like four and a, four and a half, four and a half. And Mari, do you stand by your initial ratings of five or did the second and third episode uh, change your mind? No, I I definitely stand by my initial rating of five. I think the second episode um, did a good job. We we talked about how the first episode set up the powder keg that was Boston, the racial powder keg that that was Boston. And then the second episode kind of just ignites it. And, you know, we we find out about like how the Bennett's are treated. Willie Bennett's uh, family, um, who was who was a black man who was suspected of the murders. And, and um, you know, until you get to and then again, the poor police practices that basically let them harass a whole black community based on just the words of, of one guy, like not police work, just the words of one guy to. Uh, episode three again full spoilers here um starting with chuck's death and suicide i was i thought that was pretty interesting but i didn't realize they started with that because guess what that's when the investigation started <laughs> and that's when they, you know uh we get his, his brother's confession that leads chuck to to um his completion of suicide that leads the police to actually doing their job and uncovering you know all of the things that they would have uncovered if they had actually did some investigating, uh, you know, the four months previous, um, how all of all of the things tied back to Chuck being the perpetrator behind this crime. And that if, you know, they hadn't let silly old racism get in the way, uh, they could have figured that out much <laughs> sooner. And um, just the infuri the infuriation that uh, that police officer was at Bill Dunn oh, Bill Dunn. invoked in, in me, I, he would do uh, nothing differently, Mari. Yeah, yeah. Were he said we still again? don't know. He said we, we still don't know who killed. Still know who killed did it. It. Yep. All all we'll the evidence. Never, <laughs> I miss my old city. Yeah, mm. it's not it's not Boston Say anymore. It uh, it, Bill. Say it without saying it, Bill. So <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, I. I truly, truly uh, love that docuseries because like SDB said, I I knew this case. I knew this case backwards and forwards, uh, but I knew it as the yuppie murders. Like I said, in our, in our review, I knew it from the angle of, Oh, it's about money, life insurance. This, like they, they, in these other properties, they never talk about the racial aspect. It's almost like they too want to just gloss over the fact that he was a, able to get away with it for so long because he understood the racial undertones and the racial tensions of his of his city and he was able to use that to almost commit the perfect crime because if his brother hadn't come forward Willie Bennett would have been sitting in prison for her murder so it's you know it's atrocious and I think that it highlighted the the right things about the case it completely highlighted the right things about about the case and yeah they could probably have um, cut that third episode up a little bit more you know and then you know just made it a, a, a like a two-parter but honestly I, I loved everything in it like I said I, I think um, it definitely spoke to the, the times and that that's what I really appreciated how about you Sarah do you stand by your rating yeah I'm gonna keep it as a five I thought it was absolutely fascinating and 
given the historical background, given the context, I loved it. Well, loved, I mean, but you know, I I found it satisfying to hear all of that. Uh, the documentary gave me time to think, and it also said, well, once they said Willie Bennett hadn't done that, oh, but he's done this other thing, so we'll yeah. keep him in jail. And I thought. Sing from that song sheet because I think that happens as well. We will arrest you because you must have done something. Mm -hmm. And now that we have you in custody, we will find that something and we will leave you in uh, in jail for that thing because we didn't like the look of you. And yeah. I thought that and, was very, very powerful. Sir. But yeah. think of all the people who also ended up in jail for probably other crimes because they initiated that stop and frisk and they were yes. essentially given the green light to just harass that community. Exactly. All of the all of the life-changing things that they did in that four-month time, time span. And it just really, you know, irks you. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, please. It's, it's, a, it's a hot topic and it can I suppose what also struck me is how it's not a thing of the past it's it's a now thing and they did that by just by showing you you go yes that's still happening now but also the very powerful testimony of the younger generation of black people who who wear it today and are living it today so yes Let's move to our recommendations. Uh, Sarah, what do you have to recommend for our listeners? Well, uh, I have a couple very quickly. Um, there is a version of this story that was made in 1990 uh, starring Ken 30-something <laughs> Olin, of all people, as Chuck Stewart. Um, they named it something absolutely terrible like a till death to us part or something like that but you can find it on youtube pretty easily just google mm. chuck stewart youtube and it'll be there it's actually pretty well done there's a lot of hey it's that guys in it and ken olin is just such a malignant narcissist presence which is a little surprising you're sort of used to thinking of him as you know 30 somethings uh, warm and well-meaning yuppie but uh, not he's not that in this so I would recommend that and I also recently watched on the Turner Classic Movies app my new favorite app because okay. I'm uh, young and hip this 1971 movie called The Todd Killings which is based on a real story uh, about a guy named Charles Schmid who was this like Pied Piper of Tucson like that's actually literally what they called him he was like the old guy at the club he um but he surrounded himself with these teenagers even though he was much older and uh there were murders connected with this guy and they made a movie starring almost no one you've heard of but it's also full of hey it's that guy's from like 70s cop shows you'll be like oh, <laughs> um and it's really quite amazingly well done like a lot of the culture has dug in on this story in different ways, like uh, Joyce Carol Oates, uh, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Apparently that short story is based on this case. Um, and then the movie starring Laura Dern from the 80s, which is based on the story. Bob Dylan wrote a song about it. Uh, mm -hmm. Rose McGowan made a short about it. Uh, but the Todd Killings from 1971, if you can find it, I definitely recommend it. It's a little like weird and occasionally trying too hard, but for 1971 where you would really expect sort of an establishment 
uh, film to be trying to make a comment on Capital K Kids today. It's rather restrained. It's in and out in 91 minutes, which God bless. Let's go back to that. Uh, let's go back to that. Please, please. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it, uh, it's left the, it's left the TCM roster for right now, but it may be back. And I think you may be able to find it on the criterion channel. It's really an interesting look at, you know, like a, what 50 years ago they were like how this kind of case's story was told. And they did quite a good job. The lead actor is serving this weird mix of Vanderbeek and Jack Nicholson. That's a little disconcerting, <laughs> but you get used to it. And then in 91 minutes, it's over. It's called the Todd uh-huh. Killings, if I didn't mention that already. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I'll uh, put all of this in the show notes, of course. So I was honored, flattered blushing pink to my cheeks uh, to be asked to contribute to Best Evidences Year End Roundup of the Best in True Crime Books, Long Reads, Podcasts and Documentaries. Best Evidence is Sarah D. Bunting and previous guest Eve Beatty's newsletter. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you Substack. get it every day. Substack, yeah. you get it every day of the week, uh, every weekday. And it is fascinating, and that is my big recommendation, is subscribe to that because it's, it's wonderful. Oh, so, okay. yeah, so I'm just, I know that Americans say sucking kneecaps here in Australia. We call it pissing in your pocket. Uh, but, Sarah, I'm not pissing in your pocket. <laughs> uh, it was fascinating for me to look back at my true crime consumption for the year, which has been a lot. So, Mari and I not only watch everything that we talk to you about, we watch a whole lot of other stuff which we decide not to do or we don't have time to do or is not good. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the list uh, dropping daily on best evidence. I'm really fascinated to see what my fellow crime writers, podcasters and commentators are recommending. So my recommendation of a podcast was, was and is, you didn't see nothing from Johannes LaCour and Invisible Institute. I, I raved about it on Crime Scene at the time it came out. And I'd like to highlight two other recommendations from our colleagues, the retrievals about the Yale Fertility Centre nurse swapping out fentanyl used in the egg retrieval process with saline and the dismissal of the women who reported excruciating pain. We've recommended that here before, but it's worth recommending again. And one that I missed out on, uh, so I'm going to definitely circle back to, is violation, which is about the way parole is used to abuse prisoners who have already paid for their crimes. So I'm just highlighting those two, but recommending uh, best evidence in general and the year-end roundup in particular to give you things for your holiday break. At Crime Scene, we are eager to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. You can follow Crime Scene on Twitter at Crime Scene RHAP, that's S-E-E-N, or email us Crime scene RHAP at gmail.com. We're on TikTok at crime.scene and on all other social media as Crime Scene Podcast. And please remember to subscribe to our feed by going to robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed. It makes a huge difference. Sarah, what do you have going on and where can the people find you? 
Well, I do have best evidence, as you mentioned, and thank you for contributing to that. Uh, It's one of my favorite things that we do each year, and that's at bestevidence.fyi and bestevidencefyi on various socials, including Instagram and Blue Sky. And I have a true crime bookshop. That's all I sell there. How true crime is told and sold, mostly secondhand, some new items, which you should check out because they're on sale right now for everyone, but especially for you listeners, if you use the code XCS15, that's XCS15, at checkout at exhibitbbooks.com, you will get 15% off your order. We will link to that in the show notes, I hope, but oh yes, again, come on through, save some money. Read some crime. Mm-hmm. And what do you have going on and where can the people find you, Mari? Well, we just wrapped up our coverage of Rap Shit over on Post Show Recaps. Me and Chappelle finished our coverage of season two. We had an amazing journey. So if you haven't already, go check out Rap Shit on HBO Max, you know, Max app. Um, And then you can go listen to us talk, break down each episode in um, season two. And it was just an astonishing season. And we were floored at the finale and we're so sad that it's done and we need more people to go and watch it and stream it so we can guarantee it a season three um but you can go to postshowrecaps.com slash connect in order to hear our um our uh, rap shit coverage we're also doing the best of 2023 for post show recaps we did a a look back on everything that the connect covered this year Uh, we had a pretty busy year so um I'm pretty sure you can get that by going to, going to uh, postalrecaps.com slash 2023 and to hear us break down everything that we've covered o- over this year. We did like five things. We covered Swarm, Snowfall, The Other Black Girl, The Changeling, and Rap Shit. So definitely go check that out. Sarah, what about you? What do you got going on? Well, people can follow me if they'd like to do that. at Sarah Carradine on all the things. Over on Post Show Recaps, I've just finished covering The Artful Dodger. Uh, worth a listen. We're, Zed and I are, are very amusing, if I say so myself. And Grace, Jess and I will bring you a full spoiler recap of A Murder at the End of the World. On Silent Podcasts, I've just finished coverage of Squid Game, The Challenge. And my co-host, Mark Levy, and I will be interviewing some of the contestants, starting with Felicia and Ashley. Cannot wait to talk to those two ladies. Watch for my Traders UK coverage. And we'll be starting next week with a pre-season breakdown with the winner of Traders New Zealand Season 1. Not saying their name, no spoilers. Next time on Crime Scene, we're covering Love Has Won, The Cult of Mother God with Matt Scott. Watch it on Max in the US and Binge in Australia and send us your comments and questions. Thanks to Sarah D. Bunting for joining us, Will from America for the theme music and the whole RHAP team behind the scenes. Until next time, case closed. Case closed. <laughs>